I hesitate to bring it up, but we are just a year and a half away from the next presidential election. And yet we are already hearing talk about it. 24 Democrats and two Republicans have already either declared that they are running or have formed an exploratory committee to consider the option. There will be debates, commercials no doubt, events, and plenty of online back and forth between now and that election. And one of the things that is already being discussed and causing concerns is what is called artificial intelligence. Have you heard about this? Artificial intelligence. Congress recently addressed the issue, trying to determine ways that they can regulate this new technology so that it does not interfere in the coming election. This issue is worldwide. It is not something just we are facing. It is worldwide in the sense that there are other nations that are further advanced in this area than we are and therefore can have an impact upon our elections. The basic concern with this technology is that you can actually create videos to make people say whatever you want them to say, to make people do whatever you want them to do. So it looks like a candidate or someone else is saying something, when in reality, they never said it at all. And with the advancements in this technology, it is getting easier to do this. It's something that's been around a while, but previously it took a long time and needed a lot of expertise to make it happen, but now it is becoming much simpler. So potentially, many can be deceived and influenced by something a candidate never said something a candidate never did. It's just made to look like he or she said or did something. And obviously this has implications in many areas of life, not just a presidential election. We have long heard statements such as, looks can be deceiving, or things are not always as they seem. But never has this been more true than in our own day when you can actually watch an HD video of something that never happened, and yet you watch it and think that it did. Now, in Jesus' case, His true nature and appearance were hidden in His humanity. Indeed, things were not as they seemed. Things were not as they appeared. When Jesus took on flesh and became a man, it was impossible in some sense for His disciples to see His deity. They saw acts that He performed that pointed to His deity, acts that we have been studying in the Gospel of Mark, but they could not see His deity because it was hidden in humanity. They could not see the glory of God, except on the one occasion that we are going to look at this morning where Jesus gave a small minority of His disciples a glimpse of His glory. We call it the transfiguration. Mark tells us his version of this event in chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And as you're finding that text, I'll give you a brief recap. If you've not been with us, I remind you that we have been in chapter 8, obviously, and in chapter 8, Jesus asked His disciples what the crowds were saying about Him. And then he turned the question on them personally and said, but what about you? Who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Peter gives that great declaration, that great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And of course, Jesus commends him for this. And then immediately after that, Jesus begins to give his great prediction. That is a prediction on what is going to happen to him. He is going to suffer, and he is going to die, and yet he is going to rise again. Something that for the first time they are now hearing as we are midway through the Gospel of Mark. And because it is new news, and because it is news that they did not anticipate nor expect, Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. And Jesus then rebukes Peter. And says, get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking the thoughts of God, but the thoughts of men. And this is followed by what we looked at last week. That basic discipleship passage where Jesus says, not only am I going to suffer, but if you want to be my follower, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. You're going to have to lose your life in order to gain eternity. Because if you hang on to this life as if it is all there is, then you will not have eternal life. So that's the background to what we are looking at this morning. Six days later, after all of these things, and by the way, Mark does not very often give us these specific references like six days, telling us that there is not only a proximity in time here, but there is a proximity in topic. We have not left discipleship when we come to the transfiguration. There is a connection here. So let's look at a glimpse of glory, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how, it is, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. We are going to start this morning by looking at the participants in this transfiguration. As Jesus gives these three disciples a glimpse of his glory, we want to set the stage by talking about who is actually there. We do not know exactly where this mountain is. Tradition has long held that it is Mount Tabar, but this is in all likelihood not true because that is too far to the south and actually not a very high mountain at all. And so recent scholars have 
been in general agreement that this is probably Mount Hermon. It is much higher, over 9,000 feet above sea level, and it is just 12 miles north of Caesarea Philippi, where we have been just six days previous for Peter making this great confession. Obviously, of course, what mountain they are on is not essential to our understanding of the story. Though we do realize that throughout Scripture, mountains play a significant role in the Revelation. This is often the place where God meets with His people. And so we are starting with the people present here. Verse 1, Jesus says, some would not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power, a statement that has been interpreted in many different ways through the years. Some say that this refers to the second coming of Jesus, a fact that is actually listed in some of the study Bibles I have. It it gives that as the, the headline there. But this can't possibly be true because that event has not occurred. Jesus has not come back. And all of the people who heard him say that are, of course, now dead. There is even some debate as to what the word some refers to. Is he talking about some of the 12 disciples, or is he talking about some of the crowd? And so there are four basic views to this idea. Number one, Jesus was simply wrong. Jesus did not understand when he was going to return. The Father only knows that time, and so Jesus just missed it on this. He thought he was going to come back much sooner than he actually will. Of course, we cannot accept this interpretation, and so we move on to the others. The second is that this occurred at the resurrection or shortly thereafter at Pentecost, a time in which only Judas had died by then as far as we know. The third option is the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 at a time when almost all of those who were present here would have been dead. Or the fourth option is at the transfiguration. Since all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, place this statement just previous to the transfiguration, many believe that it is at the transfiguration that Jesus is referring to, in which case the story we are looking at would be the fulfillment of verse 1. Of course, there are some difficulties to this as well. It's only six days later, so probably all of them are still alive. And we have to ask the question, did the kingdom of God come in power at the transfiguration? So we really are unsure about what this verse refers to. All three of the last options are held by very good people. So whatever we conclude, this is not a statement that we ought to be divided over. But again, if it is referring to the transfiguration, as many believe, then we are seeing the fulfillment of it in our study this morning. So Jesus is going to take with him some of the disciples, not all, but just what we call his inner core, Peter, James, and John. These three men are also the three that were invited by Jesus to go further with him in the garden on the night on which he was arrested, a story in which we find them asleep when they were supposed to be praying. And Luke actually tells us that they fell asleep at this story as well, and they wake up and see Moses and Elijah. But not only are some disciples present, we also notice that there are some prophets in attendance, Moses and Elijah, according to verse 4. Now, why are these two men present here? Out of all of the men of the Old Testament, why are these two at the transfiguration? Well, some say they represent the law and the prophets, Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, and therefore the two great 
portions of the Old Testament represented by these two men are now present to authenticate the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament scriptures, and they are agreeing with that. They are acknowledging who he is and the fact that he is that fulfillment. Others conclude that they are present because they were both great deliverers. We know that Jesus is going to deliver, that is, he is going to deliver us, his people, from our sin. We know that Moses was a great deliverer, for he was the one God used to bring the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. You say, well, what about Elijah? How was he a deliverer? Well, Elijah was used by God to deliver the people from the false worship of Baal in that great encounter on Mount Carmel, another mountain experience. And of course, we know that there are a lot of similarities between this event and Mount Sinai when Moses met with God. In fact, six days Moses spent on that mountain sojourning before God spoke to him, even as we see the six days here. But the only place in Scripture where these two men are together is in the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, something we will come back to shortly. Now Luke tells us, again I'm combining the three synoptics in my study this morning on this event, But Luke tells us that these three, that is Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, were discussing Jesus' upcoming departure in Jerusalem. And the word that Luke uses is actually the word for exodus, meaning that Jesus is tied in with Moses once again. And so at this transfiguration, this glimpse of glory, we have some of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. We have several prophets, Moses and Elijah, but most importantly, we have the Messiah present. Remember, Jesus has just begun to teach them that He is going to suffer and die. Yes, He did tell them as well that He would be resurrected, but they can't see that yet. They don't understand that. They cannot get past a suffering Messiah. Those two words just simply do not come together in their mind. And so naturally their question is, is Jesus really the Messiah? Or as John the Baptist asked when he was in prison, should we look for another? I mean, based on the turn of events that have recently occurred, they are mulling over in their minds, is Jesus really the one who is going to deliver us, or should there be somebody else? So this encounter on the mountain is another teaching opportunity showing them and us that He really is the Messiah. At Christmas, we sing, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. That is, we strive to see Jesus in His deity and in His glory, though we acknowledge that it's difficult because He has veiled Himself in the form of a man, in the human nature. But in these few moments, these disciples, and us by extension, are allowed to see those those veils peeled off, and they get a glimpse of the divine glory of Christ. That is what this transfiguration is all about. The only similar incident in Scripture to this is back on Mount Sinai when Moses meets with God, and he comes down from that meeting, and his face is shining, so much so that the people tell him he's got to cover up. Now there, it is a reflected glory. That is, Moses has been with God, and as a result of being in the presence of God, he is reflecting the glory of God. He, in his own nature, does not have that glory. 
And by the way, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Aren't our lives supposed to be a reflection of the glory of God? You remember in Acts, after the disciples had learned that Jesus was indeed alive and they were radically transformed, the people say of them that they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And that is my question for us at this point. Do people recognize that we have been with Jesus? As we abide in the presence of Christ, do we reflect His glory even as Moses did coming down from that mountain? Paul in 2 Corinthians says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So I know that's sort of a weighty verse, but here's what he's saying. Number one, he uses the same word that we're seeing here, transformed. This word for transfiguration is only found a couple of other times in Scripture. Obviously, it's found in the parallel passages in the other Gospels, but outside of that, it's only found two other times. This is one in 2 Corinthians, and the other is in that famous passage in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Both of those refer to our transformation, and both of them refer to a moral transformation. That is a change in the way we live as a result of our relationship with Christ. Now, the Greek word for this word is the word from which we get the word metamorphos. And I know it's summer, but I'm asking you to go back to science class in high school. Metamorphos is the science term we use to speak of the radical change of a tadpole becoming a frog, or a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. Such a radical change that you don't even recognize that the two things are the same. They've just changed. And that is the kind of radical change that we are talking about, not only here in the transfiguration and the appearance of Christ, but also in our own lives as a result of our relationship with Christ. All of that to say Jesus is not reflecting the glory of God. Jesus is unveiling His own glory because He is God. His appearance changes. His nature does not change. But His appearance changes so that we can see His inherent nature. Because He is God, this is a powerful way to teach His disciples that He is indeed the Messiah. In spite of the suffering that he has just predicted, in spite of the fact that he's told them they are going to have to suffer if they follow him, he now peels away that, that image so that they can see the glory that is behind it. And so now that we know who is present at this transfiguration, I want us to see the reactions to the transfiguration. And it is no surprise that the first reaction we go to is Peter's action. You know enough about Peter by now. Peter is a man of action. He is not going to do nothing. He is going to do something because he is a natural-born leader. He's that type of guy that sees that something needs to be done, and he doesn't wait around for someone else to do it. He does it himself. He assesses the situation here. Lord, it is good for us to be here, which is a tremendous understatement. Lord, it is good for us to be here. And if it is good for us to be here, ought it to be better if we hang around? It is good for us to be here, so why don't we stay? And if we stay, we're going to need shelter. 
And so Peter offers to build three shelters, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, some suggest that he was in error in suggesting this because it implies that these three are equal, that in building all three of them a structure, they are on equal footing. And of course, that is not what is taking place here. Moses and Elijah are here to testify that Jesus is the Messiah. They are not his equals. It is also possible that he is missing the point in desiring to stay at all. Again, I keep going back to the fact that Jesus has just predicted his sufferings because I want you to see the connection and the fact that Peter was not happy about this and did not want to see it happen. So is it possible that Peter is now saying, let us stay here so that we can avoid the suffering that Jesus has just said is going to take place as they head to Jerusalem? Is this another attempt to bypass the suffering and death that Jesus has just predicted? Instead, staying on the mountain and getting more comfortable in doing it so that he doesn't have to go through this. There is also the idea in Judaism, and this could be in Peter's mind as he, as he does this. There is this idea in Judaism, this hope that God is going to come again and dwell with his people. It is what John says in his prologue, that Jesus came and dwelt among his people. That word dwelt is the word tabernacled. He came and pitched a tent among his people. And so it is possible that Peter is thinking about that here, that promise that God is going to come again. And he is pitching the tent here so that he can dwell among us. Mark gives us the editorial comment in verse 7 that Peter and the others were afraid. And so they didn't know what to say. Remember, we said at the beginning of our study of this gospel that Mark is getting his information from Peter. In all likelihood, he is getting his uh, information about the ministry of Jesus directly from Peter. And so this is likely a direct remembrance of Peter of this event. So Peter tells Mark that he was afraid and he did not know what to say. And it's a good reminder that when we do not know what to say, we ought to say nothing at all. There are times when we ought to just be quiet rather than speak. And by the way, this applies to our online discussions as well. It is epidemic these days how quickly we comment online about various things when we do not know the facts. Many times we don't even care to know the facts. And as a result, later we have to apologize or reword or take down what we said or just stick to our guns and keep it up and look foolish in the process. Far better, as the Bible says, to be quick to listen and slow to speak than it is to be the opposite. Now, we don't know all of the answers because Peter doesn't get to finish, nor does Jesus respond to him. Instead, what we see next in the the reaction to the transfiguration is that God's voice speaks A cloud overtakes them, and we know that clouds are symbolic in the Bible of the presence and the power of God, that He is among His people, and that His glory is present. So God is here too, and we know that not just because of the cloud, but because He speaks. And the words are very similar, almost identical to what we discovered at the baptism of Jesus. He identifies Jesus as his son. This is my beloved son. This is another way of saying this is indeed the Messiah. So now twice, 
from heaven itself, these disciples have heard the voice of God speaking and saying, yes, he is my son, he is the Messiah. And this is the very purpose of the transfiguration. Now, the words are not exactly identical because it is added here, listen to him. The transfiguration is not a time for Jesus to show off. This is, this is not a, for the purpose of, of just doing something spectacular. This is for the purpose of demonstrating to his disciples in this moment of their questioning what lies ahead, that he is indeed the Messiah, therefore God is pleased with him, and God says, listen to him. The main difference between God speaking here and at his baptism is at the baptism it is addressed to Jesus. You are my beloved son. Here God speaks to the disciples and he said, this is my beloved son. Therefore he adds, listen to him. After all, this time the voice is speaking a command to them. This is great advice in any context. I mean, we would do well to follow this no matter what aspect of life we are dealing with, and we would save ourselves a lot of turmoil and trouble if we followed this one brief statement. But given the context, this is not just a general advice for life. This is specific to what they are dealing with. God is telling the disciples, don't think that you know more about Jesus and who the Messiah is than Jesus himself does. Listen to him when it comes to what kind of Messiah he is. He's told you he's going to suffer. He's told you he's going to die and that he is going to rise again. Now listen. It is hard for a man of action like Peter to be quiet and listen. It seems so passive and unproductive, but in reality it's anything but we say sometimes, don't just stand there, do something. we got to be action people. And yet God is saying the exact opposite in this case. Don't just do something, stand there. Be quiet and listen to God. Be still, the psalmist said, and know that I am God. Now clearly we ought to be doing things for God. I'm not undermining that. But there are times when we need to stop doing anything for God and we simply need to listen. Or as we talked some time ago in a previous series, there are times we need to gaze at the glory of God. And that is what we are attempting to do once again this morning. These disciples were given a glimpse of God's glory. And we need to pause in our lives and do that same thing. And that is in a small measure what we strive to do every Sunday so how do we do that? Well, the third reaction, not only Peter's action and God's voice, but the third reaction is the disciples' worship. They fall down in fear before God. Now, Mark doesn't tell us they fall down. Matthew adds that element, but Mark does acknowledge that they were afraid. Both of these, fearing and falling down, are appropriate responses when confronted by the holiness and presence of God. Why there was not a similar response at the baptism, we do not know. We are not told of any response at that scene. But let that reaction sink in for a minute. Over and over again in Scripture, when people are confronted with God and His glory, even if it is just a temporary and quick glimpse, as we're seeing here, they fall down in fear before Him. 
This in contrast to virtually every story you hear today of someone having a vision or an image of God and it is familiar language and, and the buddy mentality, how God put his arm around them and reassured them. We do not find those kind of reactions in Scripture. Every time, without exception, it is worship and fear. I'm not talking about fear in the sense of being afraid per se, but fear in the sense of awe, of understanding that on our own we do not belong in the presence of such a holy God. And this also reminds us that worship is an appropriate response to knowing God. When you are here in church, you are not doing nothing. You are not being passive as you come to God in worship. You are doing the very thing that God created us to do. Think about the Exodus for a moment. When we think about the Exodus, we often think about the deliverance. That's sort of all we think about. The plagues and then God using Moses and Aaron and even Miriam to lead the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. But what did they leave to do? Seven times in the Exodus narrative, we are told that they left for the purpose of worship. Moses would continually go before Pharaoh and say, we are going to leave, but we are going to leave in order that we will worship God. May we not forget in our deliverance from sin, we were delivered for a purpose. We were delivered from sin so that we might worship and therefore, it is an appropriate response to knowing God. But there is a fourth reaction. We see that Jesus comforts them. Again, we have to rely on Matthew for this aspect of the story. In response to their fear, in response to their falling down, Jesus brings a helping touch and comforting word. He says, arise and do not be afraid. Again, this is often what we see throughout the Bible. More times than not, when God or an angel appears to men and they respond in fear, the first words are, do not be afraid or do not fear. Yes, we are to have a sense of awe and respect, that kind of fear, but we know that perfect love casts out fear, and therefore we are to bask in the perfect love of God for us. Therefore, we have no reason to fear God's presence we have a right to be in the presence of God, not because of our lives, not because of our goodness, and certainly not because of our righteousness, but because of our relationship with Christ. Because we bear His righteousness, we can indeed be in the presence of God. Again, that doesn't mean arrogance or flippancy. It means a relationship and fellowship. Well, we want to live in these high moments, don't we? I mean, if we have these kinds of experiences... I'm not saying we've had transfiguration moments, but if we have high spiritual moments in our lives, we want to stay there, even as Peter did. It's good for us to be here. Why don't we stay a while? But invariably, we have to come down from these moments. We have to go back to the routine of life, even as these disciples now must descend from the mountain and go back to everyday life, which, of course, means as followers of Jesus, they are going to head toward Jerusalem and experience his suffering and death and ultimately their own. But as you might expect, this unique experience prompts a question. So I want to conclude by looking at the question concerning the transfiguration. And you can certainly imagine that their heads were spinning by now with what they've seen and heard. They were trying to piece it all together as to what it meant. 
But instead of answers, they had questions. But before they could get their questions out, Jesus issues them a command to silence. And for those of you who have been with us throughout the study of Mark, this does not strike you as odd because we've seen this on numerous occasions now. And yet, how can they be expected to be silent about such a moment? I mean, don't we want to share these kinds of things? Isn't that half of the fun? Telling other people what has happened to us? Dare I even say bragging to other people about what has happened to us? Because we were privy to a unique experience, and they were not. Can't you just imagine these three going back to the rest of the nine and saying, you will not believe what we just saw. You will not believe what we just heard. Now, Jesus told us not to tell, but come here a minute. I'm going to share it with you anyway. I mean, that's part of the joy in it. And yet Jesus tells them not to tell. This is the last time in Mark's gospel that he will issue this command. And it is not a command that is given by him designed to squelch their enthusiasm or their joy. It is a command, as we've seen throughout the gospel, because there are misguided conceptions about what kind of Messiah he is. And until those things can be cleared up, these experiences need to be kept quiet. Perhaps even the rest of the disciples are not ready to hear of what kind of Messiah he is, though he's already uh, told them briefly. If word gets out about what they've seen and hear, they might want a political or a military Messiah, not a suffering Savior. And again, that's why this command is given, and in this case, that's why this command is temporary. They are allowed to tell, but only after the resurrection, which they clearly do, because we are now reading this story. And so next we notice the question that they posed. Seeing that Elijah uh, was there with Jesus has brought to mind a theological and chronological question. The religious leaders had consistently taught that Elijah must come before the Messiah, and Jesus confirms that their understanding is correct, though not their interpretation. Now, this belief comes from that Old Testament passage that I referenced earlier where Moses and Elijah are found together, Malachi chapter 4 and verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And that's how the Old Testament ends. Those are the very last words in the Old Testament before 400 years of silence and the opening of the New Testament. And so there has always been in this intertestamental time this looking for Elijah. And now these disciples have seen Elijah on the mountain. Does this mean that Elijah has now come? Is that the fulfillment of Malachi, and therefore the Messiah has arrived? Have they witnessed the very fulfillment of that Old Testament prediction? And perhaps more importantly, if Elijah has now come, does that mean that there is no need for suffering or the cross? That the time of victory has arrived, the Messiah is here? Now notice the answer given to them. Elijah did come, Jesus said, just like the Old Testament prophesied. But just like the coming of the Messiah, he came in an unexpected way. He did not come in bodily form as Elijah. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. 
And that is in the person of John. Matthew makes it very clear in his account from the lips of Jesus that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And what did they do to John? He suffered and died. We've already seen that in Mark's gospel back in chapter 6. That they treated him with shame and ultimately killed him. Just like they will do with Jesus. And just like they will do with many of the disciples. They need to understand that the forerunner suffered and died. Christ is going to suffer and die. And that a life of discipleship means that they might suffer as well. But all of this to show that he is indeed the Messiah. Which is the question that you and I must answer. Is Jesus the Messiah? That was the question that was on their mind. They thought he was until he started talking about suffering and death. They've left everything to follow him. Are they now wrong? Have they wasted this year plus of their life following an imposter? Or is this really the Messiah? That's the question that you must answer also. Lest you waste years of your life in search of other things. Or worse yet, waste all of eternity. There are only two answers to this question. I mean, it is very simple. Is Jesus the Messiah? Yes or no? There there is no middle ground. He certainly claimed to be the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. He certainly claimed that he was going to suffer, die, and rise again. And we believe that he did, in fact, do these things. So either he is the Messiah, and therefore you would do well to listen to him, or either he is not the Messiah, and you might as well not listen to him and ignore him and live your life as you please. Well, you might be tempted to say, I could and would answer this question definitively if I had an experience like they did. Well, of course they eventually said Jesus was the Messiah. They were on the mountain with him when he unveiled his glory. They saw with their own eyes a glimpse of the glory of God. If God would do that for me, then I would believe. Perhaps you've been looking for a sign. Maybe you've been asking for a vision. Maybe you've been looking for a miracle. And when and if you get these things, you will believe. And until you do get these things, perhaps you have become bitter. Again, of course they believed. They saw. Well, I'll let Peter answer that objection for us. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. Peter's looking back to the very event we're studying this morning. But notice what he says next. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What in the world is Peter saying? He's acknowledging that, yes, I did have that unique experience where I was on the mountain with James and John, and I saw a glimpse of the glory of God. But he's saying to all of us, you have something better. You have the very word of God. 
And the word of God unmistakably tells us that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. So we, too, must listen to him. And remember, this glimpse of glory comes right after the initial prediction of suffering. The disciples needed some reassurance. They needed some encouragement that they needed to follow Christ even in the face of difficult times. And perhaps you find yourself in a similar situation this morning. I remind you that Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory which shall be revealed to us. We talk an awful lot, we complain an awful lot about our pains and aches and trials and tribulations. And I understand that and I do it too. Perhaps we need to take our eyes off of all of that and get a glimpse of glory this morning and realize that no matter what we go through, the glory that is coming in full later is far superior to all of this. Let's pray.